This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of All Possibilities is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Take an accomplished, award-winning chef, add a pound of radio and TV, a dash of published author and poet, and top it off with a certain kind of doula. This is the exact recipe for Roseanne Gold. More on her shortly. Coming up, you'll hear about Roseanne's remarkable journey as the food expert's expert, why she became an end-of-life doula, and she shares a very touching story about how her mother's last moments set the stage for the next chapters in her life, including becoming a mother. And we each share a different kind of reading with one another. Welcome to the All Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being My Purpose. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all possibilities. Before we get started, I think it's important you get a sense of how accomplished my guest is. Believe it or not, this is an abridged version of her bio. Roseanne Gold is one of the most prominent women in the food world. As an award-winning chef, author, journalist, and restaurant consultant, she helped shape America's culinary landscape as a pioneer in the food revolution that began in the 1970s. A four-time winner of the James Beard Award and recipient of the Julia Child IACP Award, she began her remarkable career at the age of 23 as first chef to New York Mayor Ed Koch, and later became the youngest female executive chef in the country for Lord & Taylor's 38 restaurants. As chef director of a renowned hospitality group, Roseanne helped create New York's magical Rainbow atop Rockefeller Center, where she was co-owner and consulting chef for 15 years, Windows on the World, and three of New York's three-star restaurants, including the Hudson River Club. She's the author of 13 cookbooks, an acclaimed food writer and journalist, and had cooked for presidents, prime ministers, and dignitaries from all walks of life. Roseanne is also known as the food expert's expert. Roseanne, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. It is such a pleasure to be here, Julie. Thank you. So it seems you do many different things. Can you take us on a journey of how those came about? Were there specific moments in your life that that opened up these possibilities for you? Mm. I started thinking about food when I was very, very young. Um, my mother told me I used to carry a cookbook around with me when I was five years old, and I was never without it. Wow. And I took it to the bathroom with me. I put it under my pillow. It was, I guess, the equivalent of a security blanket. And um, I think it was a way of self-soothing and taking care of myself. And I just loved illustrations of food when I was young. They really made me swoon. So later on in life, I really think a lot about the swoon factor when I cook and entertain and when I write books. Um, So I, yeah, started cooking when I was very, very young and started experimenting. I remember once also when I was quite young, I 
read Heidi. And uh, there was a scene in the book where Heidi is with her grandfather, and I guess they're in the Swiss Alps, and he takes big chunks of Swiss cheese and puts it at the end of a stick and toasts it over a campfire. And it was very early in the morning, and I went down to my kitchen, and I cut some Swiss cheese and put it on the edge of a fork and started <laughs> cooking it over an open fire, which is a terrible smell in a small apartment. And mm-hmm. my parents came running down the steps. What are you doing? What are you doing? But there was something about uh, you know the connection to food when I was very young, I, I think it was a source of great pleasure and also, and also pain in some ways. But we can talk about that later. Mm. Can you you talk about the the swoon? So, can you describe? Can you bring us to that? Maybe it's a a specific page in that book. Can you help us relive? Yes, one you know of those there are a couple moments? of images, and maybe even some people listening can relate. Um, Candyland, when we played when we were very young, had remarkable graphics. And, um, you know, pictures of like huge gumdrops near a brook and uh, melting bricks of Neapolitan ice cream, vanilla chocolate and strawberry and um, candy paths. I I don't know. I guess I was really full of fantasy and, and longing. So where other people, other children, I think, really loved characters, I loved images of food. And I also remember another cookbook. There was a glass of lemonade, see if you can picture this, with uh, ice cubes. And inside the ice cubes were cherries, maraschino cherries. Mm -hmm. So there's this like red, very graphic, right? So there's this red ball inside this frozen ice cube in a glass of kind of pale yellow lemonade. And I also remember thinking that was just the bee's knees. (laughs) Beautiful. Yeah, photography. I mean, I love looking through cookbooks I'm not much of a cook, but the the imagery just makes you it makes your mouth water. It's really yes. Well, beautiful. I think you know we're living in an Instagram uh, you know reality now, and I think there's this kind of interesting mashup that's happening between the actual taste of the food and the and the image of the food, and um, something is happening in our brain that really sort of lights up when these two two things happen. But in and of itself, they're each very pleasurable to eat something and to look at something, mm-hmm. but together is sort of the wow. And um, yeah, people seem to be so smitten with food now in different ways. And even when I got started 40 years ago, um, it's kind of a language. You know, I think uh, the millennials are really using food as a language to communicate because they're not doing a lot of other things together, even listening to music or going to museums. Um, people live in little silos in some ways, but I think the table, the kitchen table, the dining room table, the restaurant table is a place for people to really be together. Mm. The kind of the hearth experience. I never had a fireplace either, but it seems like that gathering place where you think of warmth and and togetherness, you know, shared it's, experience. It's funny. I didn't have a hearth either, <laughs> uh, the heart of the hearth, but, but you can feel it, right? So there's some imagery that comes up around food language. And I do teach a class at the new school called The Language of Food. And I believe it's the first class of its kind to look at menu language as a form of literature, specifically poetry. And I make a real case for the similarity between poets and chefs, because if you think about it, Poems and menus are basically words on a page, two-dimensional, well, three-dimensional object, but it's really in two dimensions, words on a page. 
And yet we can read poetry and feel so much um, longing, desire, anticipation, sadness, grief, beauty, um, you know, excitement. And the same thing happens on a menu. So poets and chefs are actually doing very similar things in essentializing, using words in a way to elicit all of this um, hunger and desire. I mean, very few people go out to eat because they want a piece of chicken. I mean, that's not what's happening. So they're not looking right. at a, men a menu for the, for the chicken per se, but they're looking to be stimulated and activated um, and to get their kind of uh, appetite wet just by certain adjectives. And um, I also call them grace notes. Sometimes it's an ingredient that's not exactly familiar, or it's the way even words or adjectives or ingredients are put together, which helps us decide what we want to eat. That's really interesting. I never, I never thought about it that way, but it's very true. When I'm at a restaurant, I'm really basing my choices off of what is literally written on a page, which is fascinating because when I'm in, in China, for example, it's actually very visual, if that makes it. It's, it's pages of, depending on where you go, but there mm -hmm. are some restaurants where it's just pages of pictures of the actual food. And yeah, there is a lot devoted to just getting the, the customer interested just by words. Right. I mean, there are many ways of doing it. And I think we're living in a time where um, the actual presentation of a menu is going to change. In fact, mm -hmm. one of the assignments is for my students to come up with the menu of the future. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they will come up with this year. It's always something so, so fascinating, sometimes very retro. In, in many ways, where there's beautiful typeface and, and some photographs, um, elaborate description. And I'm sure many of them are going to do something really very, you know, nouveau tech. Um, and, you know, wine lists now are really presented very often on kind of iPads. And I think something is really lost in that. So we talk about that a lot. What is lost um, in this sort of sensual aspect of going out to eat when things become very technologically um, derived? Hmm. I think that's why I like the Trader Joe's Fearless Flyer. Do you know that? It's it's basically a newspaper of all of their new newest items or or you know, items that they're looking to promote. And it's written as if you're, it just feels so nostalgic. It's like you're reading some oh, yeah. 1950s description of... Well, there's a very famous catalog. I don't know if you know it because it's, I never really read it, but I've heard of it. Is it Peterman's catalog where all of the items are written in a way where they're all mm -hmm. little prose poems mm -hmm. or little narrative or short stories? Right, right. So I didn't realize Trader Joe's did that too. Very yeah, cool. it makes you want that, you know, mint chocolate chip, whatever. Or I do. It's, <laughs> it's my very favorite ice cream flavor. Crust. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so you grew up kind of really supported by the notion of food and creativity and poetry. How did, how did you get trained in it? And like, what was that trajectory like? Yeah. So this is what's so fascinating. When I grew up, this is, um, I grew up in the 50s and went to college actually to be a psychologist and a teacher. But I always loved food. But in the mid-70s, when I graduated, it was not a very, you know, sexy profession for women. In fact, there were very few women in it. So 
I believe that the food revolution really began in the first one, because there's another one happening now, but the first food revolution really happened in the mid-70s. And for the women who were in it, we really had to kind of scratch our way in and prove ourselves. And very few of us went to cooking school. I mean, cooking school, traditional cooking school was really the purview of men. And um, I know that I got my start just by apprenticing all over the city. Also, when I graduated, I made a beeline for Gourmet Magazine. I just wanted to work there, and uh, they didn't have anything for me. So I wound up getting a job as a secretary in an advertising agency, which was either in that building or across the street. I can't remember. But I started my own little catering business, and it was called Catering Artistique. And um, I started cooking for some politicians and some celebrities. And before I knew it, I was cooking for the mayor, the former mayor at the time was Mayor Wagner. And he was a partner in a law firm. And it was at a time that executive dining rooms were becoming very popular. So it was really very prestigious to be invited to the dining room of a law firm or a bank. And uh, I would cook for all of these lawyers. And then I found out that Mayor Koch, who was just he was just elected, that he would be looking for a chef, and I applied for the job, and I was all of twenty three years old, wow. and they said, "Oh no, 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 we just hired a very fancy French chef, and thank you very much, but you know you're really not very qualified," which was which was really true. So I said, "Well, okay, if anything ever happens, give me a call." And later that week, <laughs> I got a call, and I said, "Well, what happened to your fancy French chef?" And apparently he did not reduce the wine enough in the beef bourguignon and that he spent a fortune in buying real silver. And I said, okay, I will, you know, give it my best. And uh, I was there for almost a year. It was very, well, thinking about it, I don't even know how I did it. It was kind of a lonely job. I lived in the basement. I made $200 a week. I was on call seven days a week and did, um, you know, all of the big parties, and also cooked for him. If he was, I made his breakfast every morning. And um, I mean, it was an amazing experience. And I was the first, certainly the first woman chef there, and the first chef to ever actually live at Gracie Mansion. So um, that was that was 1978. That's incredible. So I really kind of, for I kept on forging my own path. And I still, you know, 40 years later, continue to do that. Uh, I've been called a little too previous, meaning that I kind of predict things and then also try to make them happen. Um, and I like being a pioneer and kind of going places no one else has gone before. Uh, it's not easy to do that. Um, what do you mean by trying to predict things and then well, make them happen? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So even the idea that a mayor might need a chef, or that it might be an opportunity for a woman to um, even imagine that job. Um, so I was a little bit fearless in, in going for it. As I said, I really didn't have that much experience. I was pretty good. Um, later on, I think uh, Mayor Koch told me I cooked a lot like his mother, so he was <laughs> very <laughs> partial to my food. But he would always go out to eat Chinese food. He also loved Chinese food, and that I did not know how to make, and I still don't. Um, and then after that, I became the youngest female executive chef in the country for all of Lord and Taylor's department stores. They had in-store dining 
which uh, was very fashionable at the time. It was a way for the stores to keep people, shoppers in the store and feed them and wine them and dine them and have them do some more shopping. So at that time, I was the private chef to the chairman of the board and also in charge of kind of reconceptualizing all of their all of their restaurants. So I kind of just dared to go places that not many people went before. That's all. I had an imagination, I guess, which was created when I was five years old with that little cookbook. Amazing. <laughs> it seems like, so you studied psychology, which is just fascinating. And then it's, I, I can imagine that being the executive chef of a mayor and, and a department store in this manner, you would learn a lot about the person or people and mm. what makes them tick and what what warms them, what they need. And there can be a lot of psychology behind that too. Yes, I think. What was underneath all of this, Julie, honestly, and looking back over the 40 years, I really am a nurturer at heart. And um, there's something very feminine, also something very uh, stereotyped about women feeding people, right? Sometimes out of just love and goodness. And I think part of it is also about wanting to be loved, so for me, there was a little bit of, of both of that. Um, but since I didn't paint <laughs> and I wasn't so much of a writer at that time, and sometimes I say since I didn't sing and dance, I cooked. So that was my art form. And uh, that also took me, you know, I think very, very far. And then I like the edges of things. I like the intersection of things. So then... I started writing more. But what was driving a lot of this, though, was I knew about this one man, um, two men, actually, that had a job that I thought sounded like the most divine job in the world. And they were both restaurant consultants. And one of them was George Lang, who created uh, Cafe des Artistes and really spectacular restaurants. And these guys had big imaginations. They were really like theatrical designers. And the other one was Joe Baum, who was considered the most important restaurateur of the last century. And uh, he created fantastic restaurants, uh, the Rainbow Room and Windows on the World and the original Four Seasons, which is still around today and just recently reimagined. It opened in a new, new location. But there was something very exciting about those places because they were kind of theaters you can eat in. And... Um, it became, you know, our, our entertainment. And I liked the mashup of architecture and design and food and places where people basically went to be happy and, uh, and, to, have a, and to have a good time. And then the, the rest of the world seemed to kind of catch up where food really became such a happening, happening thing. Um, and then I started writing. And then I started writing cookbooks. Um, and then I became an end-of-life doula. I mean, it really goes on and on and on. So when I look at my 40-year history and I look back on it, I say, what what has this been? What, what to call this? So I look at it as an umbrella. The whole umbrella is nourishment. And, um, you know, what does nourishment look like when there is food, which was most of my career, cooking? But I'm also an end-of-life doula. So what does nourishment look like in the absence of food? So that's spiritual nourishment. And that led to my love and, and um, 
going back to school in poetry. Coming up, you'll hear why Roseanne became an end-of-life doula and what that entails. Do you have a story or a comment you'd like to share? I'd love to hear from you. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. You can also connect with me directly at my own website, beingmypurpose.com. Entrepreneurista, a woman who organizes and operates a business, taking on greater than normal financial risks in order to do so. One who has a drive, passion, and vision with an undying determination to succeed. She is fiercely motivated, ambitious, and competitive, forging her own path to independence and success. That's an entrepreneurista. Through the conversations on the Entrepreneurista podcast, we want to celebrate failures, reflect on successes, and get unfiltered about what it takes to be your own boss. This is the Entrepreneurista podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have, with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done, and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram, with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurstapodcast.com. All right, Roseanne, why end-of-life doula? Yes, so um, this was one feature of my life I don't think I ever could have predicted. So... When my mother died, I was really, really grief-stricken. I mean, I think I was 52. And um, my mother and I were incredibly close, maybe even too close. So when she died, I remember saying to my husband, I didn't want him to worry, but I really didn't want to be alive right now. I mean, the grief was really that, that deep. So I had this desire to look at death in the face, rather than kind of run away from it and kind of protect myself. I had this idea to go work with people who were dying. So it was a way to heal myself. It was a way to learn more. It was really a way to deal with some of my fear. I mean, I was not brave. I mean, the fact that this is what I do now is kind of interesting to me, too, because I'm not <laughs> I'm not fearless. And I was with my mother when she died, but I had never seen anyone die. and. Um, it was frightening, and at the same time, it was one of the most sacred experiences I ever had in my entire life. So I wanted to learn more. But this was 14 years ago, and there were very few people doing this work. I think people who dealt with families at the end of life and patients were primarily chaplains uh, or rabbis or you know priests, but that was really it. And this has changed tremendously because there are people now who are spiritual care volunteers and people who are specifically called end-of-life doulas. And this word was actually created by a man by the name of Henry Fursco Weiss, actually 14 years ago. And he has an organization now called Inelda, uh, the International End-of-Life Doula Association. So he's found a way to kind of create a model for this work. And end-of-life doulas are basically non-medical people, and they do what birth doulas do, but, you know, kind of at the other end of 
the life cycle. Um, it's a way to be with people, not to fix. There's nothing you can fix. But what I really loved about it is it's a way to bear witness and show up and listen and to be a presence. Uh, again, my mother had me and my husband and my brother and um, a very special friend with her when she died. But my father died alone. And I also, I think, was haunted a little bit by by that, that I also didn't feel people should die alone. And um, But this, again, was a little bit parallel to my start in the food world in the sense that there were very few people doing this and there was really no one way to do it. I also, again, had to invent my own journey. So I got trained by the Visiting Nurse Service of New York um, to do to ju really just be a volunteer in hospice and uh, other places who did this kind of work, that did this kind of work. Um, and then I started looking around for other workshops, and many of the places I found this work were in Buddhist centers. And I found a place called the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care and did a very intensive uh, nine-month program there. Um, and I loved it. And in order to do this work, I had to develop a, a practice, a sitting practice, meditation practice, because to do this work, you really need to check in with yourself. You need to really be very present with yourself in order to be present for someone else. And um, I, my goal was to work in every hospice I possibly could in New York. And uh, I have about a thousand hours of training and one-on-one -on -one with patients. Um, and I discovered poetry actually through that work. You asked me before how these things kind of meshed. But in between being with patients, I would go take a few minutes to be by myself. And I started scribbling in the margins of my worksheets. And at the end of the day, I would look at it and say, wow, this looks a little like poetry. Maybe I should find out more about that. And that's eventually what had me go back to school to get my MFA in poetry. But this idea of nourishment and the sacred and love and really seeing the other person, uh, almost becoming that person when you enter a room, uh, became invaluable, became a very big part of who I, who I was. Would you mind bringing us to the moment when your mom passed? You described it as mm. sacred. And is, is there one moment that you recall or, or feel comfortable sharing? Sure. Um, I was so frightened to be with death and knowing that it was inevitable and my own profound feelings of loss. And, um, and thank goodness there was this other woman in the room who was, again, her very close friend, a very close family friend who was deeply religious and very comfortable around death. So she became my teacher in some ways. But my mother was actually very peaceful at the end and in her own bed and um, breathing. She had something called pulmonary hypertension. So breathing was really kind of challenging. But but she was she was calm and we had, hospice had been involved for a few days. So, you know, there's a little kind of emergency kit and they do give you morphine. And I wasn't able to administer it to my mother. It was 
really terrifying. So my brother and, and husband were able to do that. But I remember um, my mother's friend, Zarella, and I were just sitting at the foot of her bed, talking very quietly. And um, it went on for a couple of hours. I remember the sunrise was the most beautiful sunrise I had ever seen in my life. Colors that you never see in New York. You see them like in the Caribbean. So vivid and so beautiful. And my mother said to me, and I quote, she said, I'm going to miss you. And I said, what? You're going to miss me? I'm going to miss you. And it seems so odd. It was almost funny, but there was something so beautiful and sacred about that. She was okay. And I lied to her, Julie. I told her I was okay, too. <laughs> but I wasn't. Tears. Lots of tears right now. Oh, thank you for that, really. Um, and then she took her last breath, and it was very gentle. It was pretty rough two days before. I can't say that the dying process is always um, simple and, and you know straightforward. It really had some very, very rough moments. And what happens is sometimes when it gets so rough and someone's on hospice, um, that a family will take the person to the emergency room. And they, you're kind of advised not to do that because what you want to avoid most of the time is to, you know, get be on a ventilator and just have that whole cycle start up again. Um, so it was very peaceful at the end. And then um, I didn't know to do this because I had no experience whatsoever. I took his scissors and I cut a lock of her hair. Wow. And then I took this finger, the ring, this ring off of her finger and put it on my finger. And I actually know she had bought this particular ring for me for this moment. And um, that felt very beautiful and very sacred too. And then I did something really crazy. I said to my brother, take a picture. Just take a picture. <laughs> For some reason, the moment was that unusual or beautiful or special. I kind of wanted to, I didn't want to let her go. I mean, that was part of it. And the other part of it was I wanted to capture that moment. And then we dressed her. My mother had just turned 80 just a few weeks before. And we put her in the clothes that she had worn to her little birthday party in the house. And... um then I started writing a lot of poetry. But that was that was the experience. Thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. <laughs> We're going to take a <laughs> tissue break, Kleenex break. <laughs> Kleenex should sponsor. <laughs> Coming up, there'll be two readings. I'll be sharing an intuitive reading with Roseanne, and she'll be reading from her book. Are you interested in getting your own intuitive reading? Are you wondering how you can align more with your purpose? I offer introductory sessions to my Discover Your Purpose readings and coaching. As part of the All Possibilities community, you get 10% off the intro session. You get a one-on-one -on -one phone call with me where I'll do an assessment of your life and give you an intuitive reading on the highest guidance for you at this time. You'll get actionable steps that you can get started on to create the life you want. 
Just use All Possibilities 2018 as the promo code. That's All Possibilities 2018. Visit beingmypurpose.com for more information on my services. Okay, Roseanne, so I did a, an intuitive reading for you, actually, before before we even met in person. Wow, that is intuitive. Yeah, and what I do is I, I have your name and your email address, and I focus on your energy, and then I ask, what is the highest guidance for you at this time? So I receive thought forms, and I hear it. And I'm transcribing, so I'm channeling words, mm. paragraphs, and images. Mm. Um, every so often I do hear, okay, it's time for an image, and so I will close my eyes and see streaming video, if you can mm. think of it that way. It's like a little movie, and all of it means something. Usually it's a metaphor. It's It represents uh, so many different layers, and what I'll do is I'll read it verbatim to you, and... As I do that, just follow the imagery, uh, whatever bubbles up for you in your mind, in your heart. We'll talk about that later. I'll ask you about that. And yeah, let's see. What else do I have? I'm looking at my phone. Um, it refers to you in third person. So it might refer to you as Roseanne, she, her, those pronouns, and refers to me as you because I'm the one seeing all of this and feeling this. And every so often there are words that are in all caps, which means these are words that are capitalized. It just means they're more important. They're emphasized. And I'll email this to you so that you can see it very clearly. But um, I... I will say these words and then say all caps afterwards so that people know. And my my visual signal for you is I'll just put my fingers up like this to signal that those words are in all caps. Okay. Are you ready? I, absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> all right. I hope I don't cry, Julie. Oh. <laughs> Whoa, we'll, we'll need more tissues. <laughs> okay. So for you, I asked, what is the highest guidance for her at this time? And it says, you saw a tabby cat with soft stripes and a light yellow-brown color. It felt young, like an animal that has embraced its prime, all caps, its youth, all caps, and curiosity, all caps, letting it lead her to many different places. The cat represents her ability to perceive, all caps, more than what meets the eye, and her sense of independence, all caps. What trips her up is when she embraces that sense of independence a bit much, becoming aloof, distant, and forgetting her home all caps. A cat can explore and linger in new places as if it has forgotten its home. They are not known to be as loyal as dogs, at least in lore, but the point here is to look at home, all caps, for her. 
How does she treat it? What does it represent to her? And what kind of home is she creating around her? And so the image that I saw, which is a continuation of this metaphor, it says, you saw the cat perched on a windowsill, poised to jump. The thing about the image is that you weren't sure whether it was jumping back into its house or out into the world. You weren't sure whether it was going back in or going out. This sense of both confusion and also duality means that there is something to be explored in her definition of her world, all caps, what she keeps external and internal to her. And so an action step, this is something for you to reflect on, to take action on. It says, to reflect on what is external and internal. What home really, all caps, means to her, and how the two can be confused. How can she bring the two together? And so that's the end of the reading. I love to hear how this resonates, what it brings up for you, thoughts, memories, stories, ideas, feelings, whatever bubbles up for you. Okay, so first I need to say that uh, you are the poet. That's very, very beautiful. Thank you. And that spirit. is its own little yeah. prose poem. That's magnificent about this about this cat. When you got started, I'm thinking, well, this is really interesting because I don't really like cats very much and I'm not comfortable with them. I can't believe how applicable this is to what I'm going through in my life at this moment. I'm so wowed by this. I, I started to actually get teary too. I, I don't know how you do this, Julie. I don't know how anyone could possibly do this also since we hadn't met. and um, Because I think one can feel a lot by being with someone in, in, in the way that we are right now, but to do this even before. What got me really teary was, um, so this is so painful. I don't know if I've ever really been comfortable in my home. And the world that I've created outside is um, has a lot of depth and gravitas, and but it's a substitute for something that's not quite. And when you use said the line about what kind of home I'm creating in my own home, um, I like to think of it in one way, but I think the reality is something that's really fraught. And I think I'm bringing a lot of my own wounds from my own childhood to my home. And this really distresses me a lot, obviously, for myself and my husband and my, and my daughter. So thank you. <laughs> for this awareness and um, I may start to feel differently about cats maybe not <laughs> uh, but I thank you for this extraordinary gift because um, this is the work that I need to do thank you
You're welcome. You're welcome. Is is there something that you want to do so we can continue unpacking this as well? But is there something that this moment of awareness inspires you to think about or explore or do something differently? You know, I really uh, think what you just did was open this extraordinary window for me. And the image of the cat, you know, is the cat coming in or going going out, um, is something that I think I really need some time to to look at. And to maybe trusting myself and knowing that it's really time to create the home for myself and, and my family that I never really had and always imagined. And then it's really time to do it. Well, what, what would that look like for you? Um, being more connected to, let's see, um, has to do with stepping in to a place that I've never fully inhabited. And it may even have to really, it may actually be in my very own kitchen to really own being comfortable there. Even food and cooking and, you know, it was always associated with work. So maybe there was a way to really associate it with pleasure and family, right? Because that was something that was always very fraught. Um, growing up, but, you know, we very unintentionally, right, and very unconsciously bring all of this, you know, with us. And it is something that I, uh, I mean, I think of myself as a pretty aware person and someone who really likes to delve and take responsibility. And, but um, these are wonderful questions that, and I don't have answers right now, but I'm really so grateful. You're welcome. Yeah. It's a it's it's an opportunity to bring the two together, this notion of so the reading I talked about the external, and I think you can interpret that in many different ways. One the easy way would be the the the, the way other people see you, kind of the work, the career, the the book, all of that, external and internal and how what thought goes into it like what consciousness goes into each of them and maybe maybe it, it, you can you know make a project out of devoting time to the internal home i think there there's been a lot around internal like you as an individual but also maybe in connection with actually a lot of the things that we talked about the hearth the gathering place the um, the dining room or dining table, the kitchen, it's, it's, it's all those things that um, we started our conversation with. So there mm. may be more to explore. It kind of comes around full circle. Pretty rich stuff. You know, one of my favorite poems is by a Native American woman poet. She's just exquisite. Her name is Joy Harjo. And the title of the poem is Perhaps the World Ends Here. But the metaphor is all about a kitchen table. And I've known this poem for a long time, 
And I can't recite it for you because I don't know it by heart, but it's about life beginning and ending at the kitchen table. And I remember how shocked I was when my husband's mother actually died at the kitchen table in her little apartment in, in Brooklyn. And it was so peaceful and so beautiful. And she just was sitting at her kitchen table with a cup of coffee. Nice. I mean, she was pretty old. She was 90. And she was, you know, really in failing health. But that was peaceful. That was a very peaceful ending. But I just really loved the imagery and, again, the metaphor for, for the kitchen table. So I need to feel more at home at my own kitchen table. And I need to make sure that my daughter feels that way, too. Because I'm not sure she does either. Mm-hmm. And and you had shared your the closeness with you and your mom. How would you describe you and your daughter? We're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I my husband and I adopted our our daughter when she was eleven and a half, and I was fifty three when someone called me mom. And the truth is, uh, our daughter's twenty two now, but we've only been together. Well, we've been together half her life. So uh, she came at 11, now she's 22. And um, that's a very, very beautiful story and a complicated one and then um, probably worth another show. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I trust that there will be a lot of beautiful things that come out of this opening. And, and yeah, keep me posted. Love to hear, love to hear what comes about. I'm blown away by this, Julie. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank the guides. The guides speak through me. I am the, the scribe. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I'd love, now it's time for your turn for <laughs> a reading of your own. And and tell us about what it is in, in your book. So, you know, I've actually written 13 cookbooks. And um, I thought I would just bring this one today. It's called Desserts 123. But it's the first time that I ever wrote poetry in a in any of my books. And this was way before I knew I even wanted to go back and pretend to be a poet or go back to school. But I really had fun writing this. And what's unusual about this poem is that it rhymes. And you know, most contemporary poetry does not rhyme today. And it's pretty edgy. And I love that too. But this is sweet. Um, ah, and that's a pun. So it is called Desserts 123. And I was a big fan of Pablo Neruda, who was a wonderful poet, who was a very romantic poet, and he used to write many odes to different things. So here we go. Desserts 123. Pablo Neruda wrote odes to life, to nature, to love, to the sun. I prefer writing odes to sweets and worship them one by one. Creme brulee takes your breath away when it shatters the quiet below. And chocolate souffle topped with chocolate sorbet can sweeten most any woe. In happier days, a la mode was the vogue and crowned many an apple pie. But today it is sleek and undoubtedly chic to find them side by side. For some of you, chocolate gives meaning to life. For others, it merely suffices. Whether a pro or a rookie, in a truffle or cookie, 
Chocolate is great in a crisis. Simple pleasures are life's greatest treasures, Neruda once whispered to me. He then kissed my hand and gave me a pan and slowly counted to three. That's desserts one, two, three. And Julia, I don't know if you know, but all of my recipes in this particular series of books use only three ingredients. And um, it kind of started the whole minimalist movement in cooking and really gave great attention to the quality of the ingredients. So if you had the best ingredients and didn't mess around with them too much and thought about them as like chords and music, so everything was in perfect harmony, then you could really cook very beautifully. Salt, pepper, and water didn't count, but everything else did. And the fact that you can make cakes and desserts and ice creams and confections with three ingredients is pretty cool. And I know your guides channel you. And when it came to this, it was Pablo Neruda that I was channeling. Beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. We all have our muses. We I do. That's the thing. It's whatever our creative format or form of expression, it all comes from, I think it, it comes from some place bigger than us. Absolutely. I think sometimes we can consciously go on our own journeys, but I really believe that there are things bigger than ourselves, outside of ourselves, that really are compelling us. Um, and it's that connection that really makes us all unique. Mm. The things that we are connecting to for ourselves. If you can leave this room with one word that you'll take with you, what would that word be? Home. And I thank you for that. You're welcome. And I will also take the word home because there's some stuff I need to do as well. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Roseanne, can you think of one person in your life who would find our conversation today valuable and why? Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, it seems obvious in this case, um, but it would be my mother, how I wish she could hear this conversation. Um, I know she enjoyed listening to me when I was on the radio, when I would do different shows, you know, I would go on the radio after certain cookbooks. And um, I know she always had pleasure in that. Plus, she grew up at a time that radio was, you know, radio was king. She loved listening to the radio. But, um, you know, there's something that I, when she said that to me about missing me, I wrote about this in my uh, master's thesis, the, the idea of the posthumous perspective. And I found it fascinating that she actually kind of projected out there, even beyond her own death, to even imagine her looking back and missing me. I thought that was so beautiful and actually something also very, very hopeful. And I think it would be very cool for her to now listen to this conversation about what transpired you know, during that time and um, that she, that even though this was something I was so afraid of most of my life, her actual death, that I became an end-of-life doula and that I adopted a daughter. Because even a few months before she died, um, I said to her that I was so sorry that I 
hadn't had children. I do have a stepson. He's wonderful. But she said the most curious thing that a mother could say to someone who was 52 years old. She said, it wasn't the right time. Wow. Hmm. (laughs) So her death actually enabled me to... um, you know, be open, all possibilities, Julie, Mm -hmm. be open to two things I never imagined ever, being an end-of-life doula and uh, being a mother. Wow. Amazing. Mind-blowing just how how the world works. And we don't even understand it, really. But the, the, the readings I do, it just keeps reminding me every time that there's there is no time as we really understand it. No. And that there's there's a connection of our souls across lifetimes. So I think your mom actually listened. She may even be here. She's probably here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of love in this room. Yeah, I feel it. Roseanne, how can people get in touch with you and learn more about your work? Just come to my house and we'll drink tea and talk about all this. Uh, But I think the best way might just be to email me at my um, email. It's rosangold at mindspring.com. It's an old one. And I do have a website as well, uh, www.rosangold.com. And there are lots of wonderful recipes and stories. And um, I'll be resurrecting my, my blog soon. So... It's a good way to be in touch. With, also with events and talking, speaking engagements uh, that I do. So I would love for people to take a look. Roseanne, it has been an absolute honor having you on the show. And I will cherish this conversation. Julie, it has been an honor to be on your show. And I will cherish this conversation. And for you, hmm, think about how you may be the tabby cat as well, and what you can do in your home, whatever it may be. Maybe it's cultivating more connection with family. Maybe it's, maybe it's looking at your kitchen and, and imagining that space again. Bring that warmth and hearth to your home, especially in this holiday season. So have fun with that and let me know how it goes. I'm Julie Chan, and until next time, be on the lookout for all possibilities. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, and our website, allpossibilitiesshow.com. This show is produced by Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be distributed or published without the expressed written permission of the producers. Thank you for joining us. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.